that we talked about yesterday, and that is love perfected, found in 1 John 2, 3 through 5. Now, I'm not going to read that this morning, but for the benefit of you who were not here yesterday, we talked about love being perfected. And John makes it very plain that love, the love of God, which is perfect, is perfected in us by doing by doing. I'd like to call your attention to Matthew, the 22nd chapter. I told you that I would talk today on the subject of do you love the lost like Jesus loves the lost? And while I pulled all my markers out of my Bible, uh, my intent is to teach the lesson tomorrow that I had planned on today, but I want to take uh, Matthew 22, verse 37, 38, 39, and 40, and I want to talk basically on the subject of revival. It's not anything new. It's, uh, it's, it's certainly a scriptural approach. But before we talk about loving the lost, we want to condition our hearts to receive some statements found in the Bible that perhaps some of you would not be able to understand or accept unless we preface it with this lesson. So from Matthew 22, verse 37... After Jesus had been questioned concerning the great commandment in the law, he said this, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. That's taken from Deuteronomy 6.5. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is likened to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And the word hang here simply means they hinge or rotate like a door would swing on a hinge. That the pivotal scripture of the Bible is Deuteronomy 6, 5. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind. The second like unto the first, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now Jesus told us who our neighbor is. That's basically what we want to talk about Tomorrow. But let's talk about loving the lost from a little bit different point of view. Let's incorporate today our relationship with God and why it is important for us to have the right relationship with God before we approach the lost. Now, I'd like to just challenge you just for a moment. 
as we look into this lesson. Jesus was establishing priorities for the Christian. How many of you would be able, without giving much thought, to raise your hand? Now, we don't ask you to do that. But without giving much thought, how many of you could tell me your priorities and exactly the way they stack up? Most people can't do that. And this is what Jesus was challenging the Pharisees and the scribes concerning. In all probability, if you can't tell me your priorities, the way they stack up, you probably missed the mark in pleasing God quite often. Because life will get a hold of you, and life will demand certain things of you. And you will find yourself shifting gears always. Now to give you an example, if you want to know the truth, I did not want to come to the prayer meeting yesterday morning at 6 o'clock. The reason why I did not want to come to the prayer meeting yesterday morning at 6 o'clock is because I slept only 45 minutes night before last. Now, that's not very long. And after only 45 minutes of sleep, and my alarm went off, I said, Lord, I think that I have legitimate reason not to go pray, because quite frankly, I felt that God kept me up all night. But on the other hand, I know how easy it is that if you do not establish priorities and stick with it, life becomes very cruel and demanding. It's like managing money. The first principle of money management is this. You must tell your money where to go not try to figure out where it went. How many times have you received a paycheck and by midweek you were broke and you had no idea where your money went and you began to count the dollars and you counted and counted and you couldn't figure out what happened, you had already come to the conclusion that you had lost probably a $50 bill or something. And then all of a sudden you remembered that you went by the cleaners and you spent a little extra money. So now you're down to $47. So you decide, maybe I lost a 20 After a while, you figure... The other places that you stop by, and it's not long until 
you got $17 left and you know that you didn't lose a $20 bill. It must have been a 10 And after a while, your wife reminds you of something else that you did. And after a while, it wasn't 10 I'm sure it wasn't 5 because I never had a $5 bill. I must have spent it all. Now, some people run their finances that way. This is the reason why they're in constant financial trouble. And could I inform you that getting a raise on the job usually doesn't help an individual like that. It creates more problems for him. America is one country in which you can spend more money than you make because the banks will allow you to borrow more money than you can pay back. Now, I gave you that little nugget concerning handling of finances because it's also that way in the other areas of your life that if you do not rise up and take command, there will always be something that stands in your way of being spiritual. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Does the least little headache could keep you out of the prayer room, you'll always get headaches. At the least little runny nose will keep you out of church, you'll always have a runny nose. Do you believe that some sicknesses are actually caused by the devil? Have you ever heard of that? I believe the Bible teaches that, doesn't it? See? So there will always be something that will keep you away from being spiritual. Now, I told you yesterday morning that I like to run my life in a very simple fashion. When it comes to goals and priorities, you can read so many books. You could go around with a list in your hip pocket on 100 ways in which to control my affairs. And you'd be more confused probably. I think the Bible teaches us that our top priority is God. Now, you may say then the second priority be your neighbor. Well, I'm going to break it down, the first priority, into two. And the reason why is because it is easier for us to equate it this way. We can remember it and the association uh, it's different in many aspects. The first priority of all Christians should be God. The second priority should be the family of God. Now, the family of God is inseparable from God in the Scripture. Like when Stephen was being stoned. Later on, Jesus spoke from heaven to Saul and said, Why persecutest thou me? The church on the earth is one in the same with Christ because it's his body. 
But because our relationship with Christ varies in many aspects from our relationship with each other, it's only right that we break it down. While you are a member of the body of Christ, certainly I do not pray to you and I do not worship you because worship belongs to God. While I may respect you and honor you, you are not God in that respect. But you are inseparable from God because His Holy Spirit flows through you and you take Christ's stead or His place on the earth today. You are His body. So our top priority is God. The second priority would be the family of God. The third priority would be the work of God. The work of God involves your secular work. And I might just add this. There's some people, that, they, they just hate their jobs. I've had young people come and say, Oh, I just wish God would deliver me from that job because there's so many sinners over there where I work. Isn't it great that God puts you among people like that to witness? Really. It really is great. Now, outside of these priorities, the Christian has no others. God, the family of God, and the work of God. That's the totality of your life. For in Him you live and move and have your being, see? So it's simple as ABC. God, the family of God, and the work of God. Now, I believe that it's important to reach the lost, extremely important. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost, but I do not believe that you should neglect your own family and let your own family go to hell trying to save somebody else's family. I think that you you would agree with that. I think any pastor who neglects teaching his people in the way of the Lord, and it's Acts 2.38, each service reaching out for the lost, I think he does a disfavor to the overall cause of Christ. I think there are times in which the body of Christ must be ministered to Feed the flock of God over which the Holy Ghost have made you overseers, which he has purchased with the shedding of his own blood. Acts 20, 28. The church on the earth is to get men saved, number one, and number two, keep men saved. So we must be involved in keeping people saved and getting people saved. One should not be neglected at the expense of others, of the other. Basically what I'm saying is this, that even though God is your number one priority, if your life is arranged the way God wants it to be arranged, there will always be time for everything that God wants you to do. The big problem is that that 
we quite often neglect our top priority, which is God, to perhaps fellowship with some brother or sister someplace. You know, that happens. There are certain things that you should do every day in your top priority. Now, I might stop momentarily to tell you this. It doesn't make any difference how you have arranged them in your mind. That is not important to God as much as the way you actually live it. Now, you could stand up and say, God's my number one priority. However, if you do not have a time of prayer and a time of devotion, you're kidding yourself if you think that God is your number one priority. Now, you're kidding yourself. You're not fooling God, but you can fool yourself. Now, you can do that. And I think if I were to ask you, what is your top priority, most all of you jump up and say, God. And the reason why that a lot of confusion comes is because on Sunday night we rearrange our priority list because the preacher has forced us to do it. After a long prayer meeting at the altar on Sunday night, Somewhere around Tuesday or Wednesday, God slips back a notch or so. And you're not praying, you're not seeking the Lord. So He's not your top priority anymore. Now basically what I'm saying is this. That if you were to stop praying, stop seeking God, stop your time of devotion, stop reading your scripture... You can go out and talk to as many people as you want to about God. And you may occasionally win somebody to God. But I can assure you this one thing. You'll never disciple him to the Lord with a prayerless life. Now you may say, but but I... I don't really have a good prayer life, and I won somebody 20 years ago, and they're still in the church. That's irrelevant. I mean, just warming a pew doesn't make you what God wants you to be. See, we think that the prodigal is the man who left church. The prodigal is the man who deviated from the principles of Christ. Basically, Any person who is wrapped up in selfishness is a prodigal. Give me the portion of goods that belongeth to me. It might also interest you to know that you can be in the church and diametrically oppose Jesus Christ. Philippians, the third chapter The Apostle Paul speaks of men who become enemies of the cross of Christ. I think it would be worth our time to turn there. Philippians 3. Philippians 3.17 Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. For example, 
For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, notice what happens. Whose end is destruction. Now, here's their problem. Whose God is their belly? Now, the word belly here means innermost being, like John 7, 37. Out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. It simply means that there are, there are people whose primary purpose in life is self-gratification, pleasing myself. Let the desires of my belly or my heart be fulfilled. I'm not excluding gluttony. But that's not altogether talking about that. Whose God is their belly. Number two, whose glory is in their shame. Now, that simply means that they glorify things they ought to be embarrassed about. Basically, they brag about sin. Now, I am glad. Listen very carefully. I am glad that we have come to an acute awareness that, you know, I really don't know how to say this without you misunderstanding what I'm saying, so I'm going to back up a little bit and rephrase it. There was a time in which it seemed like everybody that was involved in the drug culture world, when they came to the Lord, that we respected and admired them to the, to the point that all we wanted to hear about was their, their, their shame or their iniquity. You got this turned on, Brother Don? I turned it off, all right. My glasses are getting so bad. What's wrong with these things? All right. And are we here? All right, here we go. And the thing about it that bothered me was that some of our young people would, would, would listen to a lot of the stories of the drug culture uh, movement and such. And, and after a while, it wasn't the God that delivered them from the sin that was emphasized as much as the sin. In other words, the glory was placed on the works of iniquity. Would you believe that Paul said that when you glorify sin that you become an enemy to the very God that saved you from it? That's what he's saying. That, that your intent may be quite innocent and you don't really mean for it to be that way, but it just turns out that way. So the Bible tells us that we should be simple concerning the things of the world. You don't have to tell me all of those old gory details about all of these things that happen, see. You know, like I, I remember years ago when I was in the world, and uh, I used to go to the, to the movies all the time, and my mother taught me against that, but I, I went anyway. My dad wasn't living for the Lord. Then uh, my wife and I, before we were married, we were dating, we'd go to the movies, and of course she was a, a very good Christian, quote-unquote, in another church outside of the truth. And so uh, we'd go to some of these Bible uh, movies, you know. And so there was one about John the Baptist, and 
and Solomon and the Queen of Sheba and David and Bathsheba. All this kind of stuff, you know. Well, here's Herod's wife's daughter that's going to dance before him. And, and, and honestly, you know, the Bible says that she danced. It doesn't say what she had on or did not have on. See? This is, this is a very warped, perverted world. And you've got to understand that Hollywood's intent is to make money, not to teach you anything about the Bible. If you think that the devil and his program is trying to teach you more about the Bible, my friend, you've got your eyes closed. That's not the purpose of it. You know, years ago, the values were so different than what they are today. I remember the first time I went to a prom and there was a girl there that had on a strapless evening gown. You know, it didn't have the strap across the top. And we all thought that was terrible. But now they have gownless evening straps. <laughs> you see, this is where the world is headed, see? And this is how... You think all oh, that's designed to teach you anything about the Bible? And see, the works of iniquity are so built up and glorified. No, my friend, that's a trap from Satan. He doesn't want to do anything but get a hold of you and, and, and pull at your emotions and pull at your lust and, and, and pull the worst out of you, my friend. My mother came by and she talked to me and said, Let me tell you something, something son said, you say that you went to see John the Baptist, but I'm here to tell you. And I was telling her, I want to know more about the Bible. She said, the Bible says the woman danced. That's all you need to know. And so, I took her advice, stored it away in my computer, and left it there. But I'll tell you what, later on, it came up, and it kept coming up, and it kept coming up. But basically, I have heard many, many Christians brag about carnality and things that they do that are wrong. I got on the phone, and I gave her a piece of my mind. They talk about how hot they got, and how mad they got, and how much they told somebody off. And Go ahead and brag about your short temper and be stupid if you want to be stupid. I'm, I've come to appreciate what the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians about the problems they were having. He said, if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. In other words, if you're prone to just be in the dark, go ahead. But nevertheless, this is the way God wants it. <laughs> you can diametrically oppose the thing that saved you, and never leave a church. The prodigal, the digging in the pig pen, my friend, is not out someplace in a nightclub like you might think. But churches have wallowing holes and pig troughs where people wallow daily and eat. And they never realize that they're prodigals. 
And they sit all their lives and never come to themselves like the prodigal did when he made his return back to Jesus. And then they mind earthly things. In other words, they get their mind on earthly things. And it seems like their purpose in life is not to give but to get. Any Christian whose purpose in life is getting, not giving, will indeed miss the mark. I feel in my heart that what I want to do is have you to turn to Psalm 85, and we're going to talk about revival. Oh, we've been praying, we've been seeking the Lord, we've been, we, we've really been questing for a deep move and a deep walk with God. I may not say anything that will help most of you, but perhaps somebody will wake up this morning. Perhaps somebody will get a glimpse of what Jesus really wants. Wilt thou not revive us again? Verse 6, pardon me, of Psalm 85. That thy people may rejoice in thee. Wilt thou not revive us again? That thy people may rejoice in thee. Did you know that there's a lot of people that come to church that don't rejoice? They, they try to figure out what's wrong with everybody. Got all kinds of little clicks and things, and they don't like what the preacher said. And, you know, you're wasting your time. You're kidding yourself. Honestly, you really are. Now, revival is a process or a situation that must occur to the children of the Lord. We basically talk about revival outside the church, but the word revival means to live again. You know, you come into your house after a vacation, and the plants are all dry, and the person that was responsible for the watering of your plants... They became so neglectful of those beautiful, beautiful treasures of yours. So your big Boston fern is hanging. Each little petal looks like a tongue hanging out dry. You use your imagination and you can hear those poor little plants just gasping. <gasps> Give me something to drink. So you go and you get the cool water. Don't you wish you had a drink? You think about this while I'm drinking it. Isn't it great to be a morning speaker? Praise God. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't do that, I guess. I really shouldn't, should I? Will you forgive me? Doesn't mean I won't take another drink, but I won't tantalize you anymore. An hour or so later you go in you think that plant will never live and you go in and all of a sudden those wilted leaves have already straightened themselves out. And they all seem to be reaching out to the world beyond. And you see growth. Now that's exactly what happens to the children of the Lord when there is a lack of of communication with God 
or should I say proper communication with God. That the church kind of turns inward, it wilts. We get our eyes on each other. We begin to judge each other. We begin to look at each other and look at their problems and look at their faults. And Peter talks about this when he talks about presumptuous sin. You know, it's amazing what the imagination can do. Night before last, I was in the house and talking with my family, and it was late at night, close to 2 o'clock in the morning. And Steve and Joyce had come up to camp, and of course, at this present time, they're not living for God the way they ought to, and we got involved in a discussion, and it was a very healthy one, extremely healthy. It was a good move of the Lord. All of a sudden, somebody right in the middle of camp in the blackness of the night threw something against the cottage, and the whole living room just shook, boom. So we sat there momentarily without saying a word. We were just startled that somebody would, you know, rock the superintendent's cottage like that. They probably saw the lights on. That's going through my mind and knew I was up. And of course, I figured it really, really wouldn't have made any difference. They'd probably rather have wakened me up. But at any rate, I went outside and... Naturally, there was nobody there. They were hiding down someplace in, in the uh, wooded area. I thought in my mind, you know what I ought to do is go get Brother Seidel and some of them, and we'll just surround this place. Or maybe I should just go down to Brother Woods down there and say, come on out, I know you're there. You know, you're supposed to be in your tent. We have camp rules. We have lights out. People ought to behave themselves when they come to camp, shouldn't they? Would you believe somebody would do that to me? You said, no, I don't believe that. Well, we went back inside and we sat there for a few minutes. Sister Grant decided that, you know, if you're going to do something like that, identify yourself so I'll know who to hate. You know? It's hard hating somebody. You don't know who you're hating. You know, you Because you know what I'm going to do? I walk around. I'm, I'm going to walk around and everybody I see that's acting like some kind of a rascal, I'm going to say, he probably did it. No. No. <laughs> now listen how this, how this, this works, see? Now I'm baiting the hook because this is the way... The imagination works. We decided we wanted something to drink, so Sister Grant went to the refrigerator. Now, the refrigerator in the cottage works super-duper. It freezes everything from the freezer to the crisper in the bottom. And we had some pop in there, and a can had exploded and almost blew the door open on that thing. And I, I knew, I knew that there was somebody on camp that I ought to hold feelings against. I knew somebody rocked the cottage. I knew somebody was hiding in the woods. I knew that. 
And I knew they ought to be caught and they ought to be sent home. Presumptuous they are. Can you believe that? So that's what happens, see, when we do not communicate with God properly. We turn inwardly like wilted leaves on a vine. But when the Spirit of God flows in us, when we communicate properly, our arms reach out to the world beyond for growth and productivity. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, hallelujah. Let's praise Him. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Revive us, O God! Let us be like the tree that's planted by the waters that we read about in Psalm 1 today. Let us constantly feed on the blessings, the presence, and the power of God. Now, if you become sick, and you go to the doctor, the doctor is going to tell you. First thing he's going to do is going to say, what's wrong with you? you? You know, you think, well, that's why I came here. Basically, what he's saying is, give me your symptoms. With every physical sickness, there are certain symptoms. I came up and worked here at camp, spent a lot of time uh, getting things ready and we, we were around a lot of dust, sawdust and everything. I have some allergies. and Just one day I just got to feeling bad. and Of course, my, my nose was plugged and I <clears throat> felt like I had pneumonia. I couldn't breathe. It feels like when this happens, it feels like I swallowed something and I don't have it all the way down. It's actually a swelling in my throat. I don't know what it was. So I know when this is happening that, that I have... Uh, an allergy attack on, and well, I can identify the symptoms, so I know what the sickness is. And if you walk in the doctor's office and you said, "Oh, I got a headache, aching muscles, high fever," go right down the line. He said, "You, we'll take a blood test or whatever, but you, no doubt, have some kind of virus or influenza." He identifies it by symptoms. <clears throat> Now, this is also true in the spirit world, in your spiritual life. Did you know that when you are not faring well spiritually, that there are certain symptoms that crop up in your spiritual life? And you need to analyze these. See, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, so let a man examine himself. He also goes on to say, if a man will judge himself, he shall not be judged. Do you possess the ability in the Spirit to look at your life and judge your own life and get your eyes off of everybody else? Now, there are certain symptoms that I say mean no revival. Some of the symptoms of no revival would be a lack of prayer. 
Now, when I say a lack of prayer, I'm talking about eagerness to pray. I remember one time we called a two-hour prayer meeting of the church, and one sister approached me after church and said, What do I say for two hours? She said, So help me, I pray five minutes. I can't think of anything to say. Now, see, I... I kind of equate that in, uh, as this person being a total stranger to God. Now, there are some people that are, that are considered to be conversationalists. They can meet a stranger, and they just rattle, 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 rattle. As occasionally, I meet a stranger, and, and he's asking me all kinds of questions, and he's telling me this and that. And when he leaves, I wonder, now, why in the world did he tell me all that? You know, I haven't seen him before. I may never see him again. But there are some people that way. But for the most part, people are not that way. But let's say that all of a sudden one of your better friends, or let's say your very best friend flew in from California, somebody you hadn't seen for five years, but you talked on the phone, communicated, they're home. They arrive at 5.30 in the evening. You pick them up. You take them out for lunch. It's a very boring time because you can't think of a thing to say. When they get to your house, you sit in the living room with them and you kind of yawn. And uh, you decide, well, maybe things will be better tomorrow, so we'll retire early. Let's go to bed at 8.30 tonight. After about a week of that, both of you are bored to death and you decide, well, it's been good to have you here, but it's been a boring week for both of us, so let's just call her quits. You go back home. Now, that's not your very best friend. Couldn't think of a thing to say. Now, this is the reason why I say, now, you're kidding yourself if God's your top priority. And you're not praying. Now, you're kidding yourself. What happens is when you begin to pray and you develop an acquaintance with God, the prayer language flows, and you don't, you don't worry too much about what you sound like or what you're saying or anything. I mean, you just spill it all out. And you can pray. And you can pray, and you can pray, and you can pray, and you feel good about prayer. If prayer is like pulling teeth, dreading getting out of bed, not wanting to go communicate, you've got a, you've got a symptom of a sickness. You've got, you got, you got a spiritual problem now. You listen to me. You've got a spiritual problem. And then another symptom is a lack of worship. You come into the house of the Lord, the very first beat of the drum or the organ or whatever, the people standing at their feet, you wonder why in the world everybody's so excited. Can't we have a church that's a little bit more sophisticated? Can't we have a little bit more finesse in this Can't we just be the kind of church where there's a great move of the Lord, but everybody's acting proper, and you even resort to the Scripture like, let everything be done decently. 
and in order. You've got your line of logic. I'm just not a demonstrative person. I've always been a little quiet, bo peep in a corner someplace. See? Could I inform you what carnality is? Carnality, for the most part, is a spirit of unconcern. If there's a great service in which people bank off the walls and shout their hair down, that's fine. But if it doesn't happen that way, it's still all right. If the altar's full of weeping souls, that's great. But if it isn't, that's still all right. If I teach a Bible study, that's all right. But if I don't, that's better yet. That's carnality first class, friend. It's a spirit of unconcern. It's the way you equate things. It's the application that you make relative to your logic thinking. If we baptize a hundred people, that's fine. But if we don't, that's still all right. Besides that, what will we do with a hundred new people? You can't disciple that many people at one time anyway. That's carnality. That's a symptom of a spiritual sickness for you to come to the house of God and just sit there. Now, I'm not saying everybody ought to be as demonstrative as the next person. I'm not trying to tell you. But I think there should be eagerness in your part, even if you are a very quiet person. There should be eagerness in your part to do your quiet thing. And you should want to do it. And you should want to do it with all your heart. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. There should be a longing inside of you to do it. Praise God. Then the next is stiffness between people, a lack of respect for brothers and sisters. We talked a little bit about this. We won't touch on it too much. But you see, we when it's a unique thing, you know, a family, your husband, wife, they have a child. They're always wondering what it's going to be. Going to be a boy or girl? Going to be healthy? Well, what's it going to be? Doesn't make any difference what it is. There's something extremely abnormal when the body, the family, rejects the baby. Don't like this one. Guess we'll leave it in somebody's cornfield or in some park someplace. You know, we don't have much choice. When God gives us a new baby in the kingdom of God, it's like a family. He just brings it in and plops the little baby down and says, here it is, like Oh, but this one's deformed. So we're going to take it out someplace in a cornfield and abandon it. We're going to use our tongues. Cut it to shreds and drive it away. Symptom of no revival. Then the next thing is the emphasis is on material things. It's not on spiritual things. Tearing up these pews the way we worship. Down front they wear out the carpet around the altar. We gave $20.95 a yard for this stuff installed. 
I tell you, and I mean this with all my heart, if the church in Madison becomes dried and dead and dull, so help me. And I told the people this, and they know I would do it. In the middle of the night, my friend, I'd get up and go over there and pull all the carpet up and put it out by the curb for the trash man to pick up and put sawdust all over Is or equals no conversions. Could I say this? If there's no growth in the pew, the growth is actually conversion. Did you know that? It means conversion means change. That's what growth means. If there's no growth in the pew, there will be no conversions at the altar. It's just that simple. America needs revival. America needs revival. From the book of Chronicles, the seventh chapter, verse 14, Second Chronicles, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. Now let me tell you something that I believe. I believe that revival tears up a lot of things, but I believe basically revival heals. It's a healing process. You remember yesterday when we talked from Matthew 10, verse 16. Jesus said, I send you forth as sheep among wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents, harmless as doves. There is something about the character, the nature of man, that when he gets on fire for God... He falls into this trap. See, the devil will do anything in the world to keep you away from prayer or keep you out of the church. Let's put it this way. Then when you get in, he wants to push you overboard. Now, when I say overboard, I'm not talking about people who are desperate for God. I'm just talking about people who, after a while, they, they feel this inside of them and they like what they feel to the point that they abuse it. Now, let me just explain. Uh, I remember a group of young people coming in our church. And I remember the one young man stood up while I was trying to talk. And he, he just took over. And I asked him to be seated. He took over again. I asked him to be seated. He took over again. I asked him to be Finally, I said, now look. Now, one way or the other, you're going to be quiet, even if I have to call the police. He stood and said, you won't call the police. I call the police. A police woman came to our church and took the young man out, escorted the young man out. As he was walking out the door, you cannot believe some of the things he said. And uh, he, he, this was a boy who had been in the truth. If I were to call his name, some of you would recognize his name. The Spirit of the Lord moved upon me, and I walked to him while he was right by that police woman's side, and I said, Mike, I want to tell you something. If you don't repent immediately, the judgments of God is going to rest upon you. He laughed. Ha, ha, ha. Who are 
you, some prophet of God. Our young people heard him. He walked out. The very next day, he got in his car and headed for Minnesota. He got over the Minnesota line. He hit head-on with a semi-truck and was killed. Now, let me explain something here. Wise and harmless. Now, there is something about something like that happening to you after you prophesied of this. that the emphasis that's placed on you, it begins to do something to you that if you're, not a, if you're not extremely sensitive to God, it can destroy you. It actually sometimes is better as far as the feeling is concerned when you feel something like that than when you pray somebody through at the altar. You follow what I'm saying? It makes you feel more important. See, God's not in the killing business. He's in the saving business. Now, those things happen. They happen in the Bible. They will continue to happen. But I remember a young man who doubled up his fist toward the heavens as I preached on the streets in La Crosse and cursed God. And he came over and laughed and said, Ha! He said... If, this, this is what he said. He, he doubled up his fist and he used the name of the Lord in vain. And, and you old so-and-so and so-and-so, if you're God, why don't you strike me dead? And he came over and he said, Huh? How come he didn't strike me dead? Now I'm supposed to give him an answer. My answer was very simple. Because God's not in the killing business. He loves you and he wants to save you. I couldn't prophesy over him. I could not have prophesied over Mike, except God moved upon me. So when we are being used in the gifts of the Spirit, does not 1 Corinthians 14 also teach us that it is for edification and comfort as well as exhortation? Sometimes we do exhort. But for the most part, God is in the saving business, not the killing business. He's not willing that any should perish. He's going to give everybody a chance that can. He's going to do all that He can to save. So, revival is necessary for America to survive. But I think sometimes we, got, we have this idea that we need to jump up, take control of the planet Earth with our fists, so to speak, smite down false prophets, tear down church buildings, set fire to all the theaters, march around all the joints in town we don't like, and that's how it's going to come. It's not going to come that way. It never has come that way. It has always come to the land when people become humble, when they repent, when they get their eyes off of everybody else and get their eyes on themselves. That's how it's always come.
And I might also add that I believe as much as I believe anything that God is sprinkling His judgments upon America. The whole Midwest and Southwest and West and Southwest and Northwest, everything now seems to be dry. Did you know that God can put us on our knees in 30 days? can do it. We read ads in the paper like this. I read an ad like this. Garage sale. Held outside. Rain or shine. Pray for rain. That's what it said. Horse show. Weatherwood stables. Held outside. Rain or shine, pray for rain. If you don't think God can't get our attention, my friend, you're badly mistaken. You're badly mistaken. Now, if God is wanting to get the attention of the world, then you and I have a very important part to play in this. An extremely important part to play in it. Because He has so designed even the plan of salvation where there is one act for man, one act for the church, and one act for God. He needs you. He needs me. Here's where I see some of us. Revelation 2, verse 1, Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars. In his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them, which are evil. Now, I want to just stop here, and I want to say this, and I want everybody to listen to me. Regardless of what you may say, it is possible to hate sin and not love Jesus. As we read on, I want you to look for this. I say it's possible to hate sin and not love Jesus. Now, I'm speaking to you as a part of the overall body of Christ on the face of the earth. I think that, I think that Anyone who pleases the Lord must hate sin. But I will say this. If somebody asked me, Brother Grant, what do you think would be the biggest problem of the United Pentecostal Church? I would say this. We hate sin, but we don't love Jesus. Now that's what I would say. If you don't believe me, ask me afterwards. I'm, I'm not here trying to knock on the UPC. I, I love the United Pentecostal Church. But I believe it's these holy convocations that Brother Kasky talked about that are necessary, that's going to see us through this day of judgment that's coming upon America. All right, we continue to read. Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. Thou hast borne 
and hast patience, and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. In other words, do you still love the Lord like you did when you were a new convert? Did you know that new converts are easily identified in most churches? And it's not altogether the way they dress. It's mostly the way they act. That there's just something about their freshness. Did you know that it is also a known fact that 90% of all the converts that are coming into the church are won by new people? It's because their leaves are reaching outward. They're growing out toward a world. Whereas most Christians have folded and withered and there's no life or communication. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Now listen to this. The secret, here's the secret. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and do what? Repent. Repent used to listen to the Baptists on the radio all the time. This is the way they always prayed. Always. I mean, you... Always. <clears throat> now, this is where it came to the Lord, okay? Now, I learned to hate this prayer. <clears throat> and forgive us, O God, of our many sins. They put that in every... I mean, if they're praying for the food. Went to a picnic one time. Boy, I was just a young, strapling boy, and I was ready to eat. And that Baptist preacher stood up on the table and prayed about 20 minutes. And I thought, now, we ask him to pray for the food, not repent. You know, like he's given an altar call. Well, I was ready to dig in. Let me tell you something, though. It wouldn't hurt us if we would just be a little more honest with ourselves and use a little bit of that vernacular more often. But mean it. I'm talking about meaning it. Because most of us don't like to confess that we're sinners. We like to say we're saints. I had time to look everybody in the eye right now. Now, really, hear me, hear me, hear me well. See, I'm not promoting sin. I'm doing just the opposite. I'm saying that that this business of perfection can only be achieved, my friend, when you lay your weaknesses at the feet of the cross every day. When that woman went to that judge. And she begged every day, Deliver me from mine adversary! Deliver me from mine adversary! And the Lord talks about avenging the very elect every day. Did you know that we need Calvary's blood every day? That sinlessness, perfection, this business of spot and wrinkle cannot be accomplished by self-righteousness! It's only by the blood of the Lamb of God that was slain that it's possible. 
And we are by nature the children of corruption, the children of Adam. We can hate sin and be sinners ourselves. We can take strong stands against false prophets and still not love Jesus. Ephesus did. You can too. Parkway can. Calvary Gospel Church can. North, you can. Calvary Tabernacle can. Nobody's exempt. It can happen to any of us. It can happen to any of us. Repent. 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, verse 11. We're just going to walk through this very, very briefly with you. Here's how the Apostle Paul talked about it. See, repentance is not a negative thing altogether like some people think. They think repentance is, is just going and saying, Lord, I've been smoking. Don't want to smoke anymore. Deliver me from it and forgive me. God, I've been lusting, so I don't want to lust anymore. Deliver me from it and forgive me. That's not altogether what repentance is. There are some very positive things in repentance. Now, just like the Holy Ghost has the fruit of the Spirit, I believe that also repentance has a fruit. John says, bring forth meat, fruit under repentance. There are ways in which you can tell if you have repented. God doesn't just leave you out in the dark. Before I begin this, I want to just say one little thing concerning it. You see one man that comes to the altar. He's been praying for the Holy Ghost 20 years. He pays his tithes. He's got all of his children married and in the church. He's not there yet. He comes down every time that the preacher gives the altar call. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't drink. He doesn't chase women. doesn't even think bad thoughts. At least he says he doesn't. You say he's lived a repentant life for 20 years. Can I tell you what? I don't believe that. I don't believe that. You can't make me believe that you're that righteous. You can't. You may say, what's the answer? The answer is to get that self-righteous buddy praying and repenting. You know the reason why he can't weep? Tears at the altar? You know the reason why there's no real hunger in his heart? Because he is not repenting. That's why it's not there. Now, you can polish up the old flesh. I've got enough discipline that I think I could backslide and not smoke a cigarette if I wanted to. After all, they're quitting by the millions and they don't even know anything about Jesus. So don't tell me that you can't do some of those things without Jesus. But here comes a a young person in the church, or I I use the word young, a a new person in the church. Oh, this person doesn't know anything about Jesus. He's corrupt and he's vile and his back pocket's full of dope and everything else. And you preach Christ unto him and, man, he makes his run to the altar and he slides in the altar like a runner sliding into second base. And people gather around him and start praying And would you believe, just a moment or two later, this man is speaking with other tongues as the Spirit of God gives the utterance. Nobody ever told him smoking dope was wrong. Nobody ever told him going to the movie houses were wrong. Nobody ever told him all these things. Now, let me ask you this. Do you believe that man repented? Do you believe God's going to fill him the Holy Ghost without repentance? 
Well, isn't that something? That he get the Holy Ghost and this brother over here can't get it. Isn't that something? Now that's that's amazing. Why would one and not the other? Because you see, repentance is not altogether a negative thing. Let me just point out something here. And we're just going to walk through these real quick like. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold this selfsame thing, that you sorrowed after a godly sort. Now, number one, the first fruit of repentance that he mentions, what carefulness it wrought in you. Repentance, one of the fruits of repentance is carefulness. It revives the conscience. You become extremely acutely aware of what you're doing that's wrong. Second, what clearing of yourself. There is a clearing. No doubt about it. There is a clearing. This is why you this is the reason why some people interpret repentance as salvation. Because there's such a load of guilt taken off the shoulder. And people feel so so transformed just through repentance that that many people interpret to be salvation. I know somebody happened, something happened to me at the altar, they say. I felt it. I felt God talking to me and touching me. Well, if you really repented, it's going to happen to you. All right, yea, what indignation? 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 Righteous anger? What do you mean? God just seems to put in every man that's repenting a fight against iniquity. Begins to hate sin. It's there. You know, you, you can come down to the altar and pray all you want to pray, and you say, I really repented, but I run back out every day and I do this thing over. Now, you may have a, you may have a habit, but see, repentance is actually that change. It's that turning, see. All right, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Fear, in this sense, it simply means that God just puts this inside of you, that you 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 don't want to do something wrong because even though you lived in the world for years and never thought about dying, now you you think about what if what if what if what if what if what if, what if, what if I were to die? See, you know, uh, what 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 would happen to me now if I if I were to get? In every case in the Old Testament, when revival came, prophets taught the people how to fear God. I do not believe you come to God because you love Him. I believe you come to God because you fear Him. We love Him because, because He first loved us. Yea, what vehement desire. Now, you got to have the want to. The big question is, how do I get the want to? I've heard people say, I'd live for God, but I just can't seem to get that desire. You know where you get desire? You get it through repentance. How do you think a man like Apollos in Acts 18 can carry these great big old crusade tents around with him and set up such an operation like he did and move the people the way he did without a desire? Where did he get it? Because he adhered to the baptism of John and the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. And this is the reason why that a lot of people in denominational churches can outshine a lot of Pentecostal people when it comes to their desire to do what's right. 
Because they have found the secret that they found a place, an altar, where they can cry out to God for their weaknesses. And this is the reason why that this brother's been seeking for the Holy Ghost for this many years and not received it. He that hungereth and thirsteth after righteousness shall be filled. And the reason why that he is not filled is because there's no questing inside of his soul for God. You take this as a personal message from the Lord, and I'm going to continue here just for a few moments. What do him at desire? If your get up and goes done got up and gone, you need to hit the altar. I'm serious with you. If you're teaching a Sunday school class and it's just a routine thing and I can't make it, I just need a change. You need a change, all right. You need to pray at the altar. That's what you need. Yea, what zeal. Do you know just praying through at an altar, repenting, will give you zeal? <clears throat> give me a fistful of tracts. Let me find somebody to talk to about Jesus. And we're not trying to de-emphasize the Holy Ghost. We're just telling you what will happen when you repent. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And then, yea, what revenge. In other words, where's the devil? You think I'm afraid of him? I'm going to lick the devil. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to challenge the powers of darkness. And then the last thing that I... I want to make an appeal to you in is First Peter the fourth chapter verse seventeen. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. In other words, if a man will judge himself, he shall not be judged. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them be of them? that obey not the gospel of God. If the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now, before God judges America, now you listen to me because this is a scriptural pattern. Before He would judge any, any world, any society, He always came down because He's in the saving business. Now remember, the long-suffering of God waiting in the days of Noah, not willing that any should perish. Before God would judge the antediluvian world, Noah found grace in the eyes of God. God needed a measuring stick. He needed a voice of authority. He needed a way in which people could find the Lord. Do you know what? He could have loaded the ark full of people. He didn't do it. He loaded it full of animals because people would not come. But God would not judge the world 
until he first sought out Noah and dealt with Noah. He did not want to judge Sodom and Gomorrah until he first sought out the righteous. He didn't want to judge Nineveh until somebody cried in the streets. And you know what? He will not judge America until he first deals with you about all of your weaknesses and problems. This is not pick on church day. When I first went to Madison 16 years ago, the church had experienced a split. I'm not... I'm not blaming the church. I'm not blaming former pastors. Things just happen. But I noticed this, that as I ministered to people, that a lot of the people, they held feelings against others and such. I taught 13 weeks on the Sermon on the Mount. I felt a directive from God to do this. Then we called several weeks, prayer and fasting, no services. We fasted Monday through Saturday some through Sunday. We got on our knees and called out to God. We called out to God. You know, you can fight carnality with carnality and you become just as guilty as the man you point your finger at. You can do that. So, I thought this was in order. Let me just tell you a couple of little things that happened. The lights were all dim. And I remember after about three days of fasting, a gentleman came in our church. He was not a gentleman then. He was everything but a gentleman. He was drunk. Came after his wife. Tired of her coming over here every night praying. So, young lady of our church approached the drinking fountain outside, and he demanded that Connie... Connie Gillum then come inside of our church and get Patricia Puckett. Go get her. She's not praying any longer. Connie said, Sir, I'm sorry. If you want her, you go get her yourself. I can't get her out of prayer. He came in his drunken condition and stood there. I watched him. I felt something was happening, and I looked, and I saw this man come in, and I knew he was dead sent against me and against the church and against Pat coming there. He stood over her body. She was stretched out on the altar. I moved a little closer, and I, I heard her. She was praying, God... Forgive me, Lord, of all the things that I've ever thought that's evil about people. Forgive me, oh God, for all the things that I've done in my lack of prayerlessness. Oh God, creating me a new spirit. Oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. And she was praying. He was going to tap her on the shoulder, but something stopped him when he heard her crying like this. And he listened for a long time, and all of a sudden tears started coming down his cheeks. And I went down there and I said, Bob, he says, Oh, God, if Pat is right.
wretches as she is has to pray like this to God to be saved. What's going to happen to me if I die lost? If the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear as holy as this woman is? My friend, he knelt at the altar and we gathered around him and God sobered him up and he took the cigarettes out of his pocket and we prayed him through the Holy Ghost on the spot. (laughs) Two nights later, we had a man walking down the street. He looked at the church sign. Our church has no windows. He could hear nothing. He called me from the shopping center across the street. He said, I need to talk to you, Pastor. And I said, what's, what's wrong? He said, I don't know. And he came inside and he said, oh, I'm so nervous. He saw people laying all around. He said, what's going on here? And I said, well, we're having a prayer meeting. I said, what's happening to you? He said, I don't know. But he said, I just saw the church and conviction came over. I don't have any idea. I don't know. <coughs> he said, I just, I, I'm so nervous. And what we did, we gathered around the man before he knelt down. He said, wait a minute. Pulled his boot off and he pulled out a dagger about this long. I said, what, what are you carrying that around for? He said, I, I don't want to tell you. He said, I, I've been on drugs and I'm having a problem with the man, truthfully. He said, I'll talk with you about it later. We prayed him through and baptized him in Jesus' name. He told me later on. He said, you know what I was walking down the street for? He said, I was going to get drugs from a man that wasn't going to give me drugs. And I was going to get him even if I had to kill him. But I just saw the building. That's all I saw. Conviction came over me. The best thing you could do for your neighbor, my friend, is to be humble and submissive and pray every day. I believe in home Bible studies. I believe in with all my heart. But I also believe that a lot of these things, my friend, a lot of these things that we prayed and sought God for will come to pass when we judge ourselves in the house of the Lord. Would you stand with me and open your Bible to Psalm 51? And here is a man who's had his share of problems. And here is the basic pattern. You'll find it throughout the Scripture. It's the reason why new converts can win so many people to God. Have mercy, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly with thy, from thine iniquity, mine iniquity. And number one, what? Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. 
Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities, creating me a clean heart. O God, and renew within me a right spirit. Cast not away, cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Now notice number two, step number two after the cleansing. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And behold, notice this, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Verse 13, then will I do what? Teach transgressors thy ways. Number three, teach transgressors thy ways. And then, of course, the total, the end results of all of this. And sinners shall be converted unto thee. <laughs> oh, God. Yea, rico America needs revive. Heal our land, O oh Lord, but more so, first heal us, O oh God. Let's sing, I need thee, O, oh, I need thee. I need thee.